Boy in the Buddy Holly Glasses, Chapter 1 June 3, 1976 The cute one came first. That's what the girls called him, or so I learned long after those girls had grown into women. But what the ladies thought of some Englishman was just one of 10,000 things I had to learn after nearly 18 years in a coma. I woke up in time for America's big bicentennial, but that was about it. I'd missed everything else. Missed what just about amounts to the life of an adult. What I missed could just about go off to war, or vote, or buy a near beer. What I missed. Man walking on the moon because of President Kennedy. President Kennedy getting shot in Texas. That there was a president named Kennedy in the first place. A war in Vietnam. That there was a place called Vietnam in the first place, half a world away from Texas. A British invasion. Yes, I had a lot to learn when I woke up after 17 years. My learning began when four British guys invaded my room. And the cute one, he came first. Now, I'd only just been moved. Strapped to a gurney, stuffed into the back of an ambulance. Sped across interstate highways that hadn't even existed in any world I'd ever known. From a hospital bed at the Mayo Clinic to a bed in a home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So it was a real shock when a shaggy feathered mane showed up in my doorway at State Street Center. And a pair of the biggest baby deer eyes I'd ever seen. They got that much bigger when they spotted me. And he jumped and I jumped and my tray of lunch ended up all over my sheets. I'm sorry, said the man with the hair in the eyes. I'm looking for a Mr. Drake. Mr. Charles Drake. They told me he'd be in this room. Ye yes, room number 522. He looked back out at the number on the door, and I looked down at the peas and the carrots and the mashed potatoes and the gravy all over my bed, and I slapped my crippled hands, one strapped to a fork, the other to a spoon, like how my big sister used to tie whittled wood utensils to her baby doll's hands, slapped them right into the mess on my chest. Now, coming out of a coma involves a lot more than just waking up and picking up where you left off. It involves a lot more than just figuring out how to use your arms and your legs again, or even act like a person again. It, it involves unraveling this person you are now, as opposed to just remembering the person you used to be. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Mr. Drake, Charles Drake. Hello, um, Mr. Drake, I'm, um, I'm, I'm the friend who helped arrange this. The arrangements, they're suitable, up to snuff. See these contraptions on my hands? That's part of the physical therapy, they call it. Working to get my hands working like hands again. If you don't use them all the time, you lose the ability to use them at all. Same with your legs. But the college kids they send over, they're, they're working hard and so am I. They say someday I might even walk again. Not just be stuck in some bed or some wheelchair someplace. I, I'm sorry. All, all you've done for me, I've got, I've got no room to complain at all at all. Believe me, I'm happy. No, I'm lucky I'm, I'm to, to be here. So griping about how hard the bed is or how bland the food is, that won't do any good, mister. Mr. Drake, what a mess. My visitor's eyes bugged out again as my nurse thunderstormed into the room. You, she looked him up and down, can wait outside. Yes, ma'am. He turned to leave. But it's a good thing what you're doing. The nurse said, 
foot shorter than him and about as wide as he was tall. She took my visitor by his shoulders and pulled him down and looked him square in the eye. Yes, I, I know all of this, his secret. Oh, so you're the inside man then, the one who helped us find this place, where, where our, where, where, his, where Mr. Drake's secret. My visitor whispered secret, as if the whole world was listening to his every word. It's safe. I never did care for that noise of yours, she said. You didn't, did you? You're no Lawrence Welk. No, I'm not. And no Liberace. No, ma'am. But I did enjoy the Ed Sullivan program when he sang the song from that movie. Oh, how I love that movie. With the crooked salesman and Marion who works in the library. They don't make movies like that no more. It's like I was singing it just for you, Miss... Mrs. Lewandowski, but you can call me Nurse Laura. All right, then. I will let you assist Mr. Drake, Nurse Laura, who works in the old folks' home. I spent my last summer, the summer of 58, in New York City. Turtlenecks and funny cigarettes in an apartment in a neighborhood called Greenwich Village. But we'd get out and see a show or two, and loved the music man with Robert Preston and Barbara Cook. Bought the record and everything. So I missed whatever movie she was talking about, and I missed that particular evening on Ed Sullivan. But I knew the tune that Englishman sang softly as he left my room for a moment, in an accent I knew was English, of course, but I couldn't quite place. There were birds in the sky, but I never saw them winging. I'd been to England, too, right before I made the move from Texas to New York. Three of us, we spent the entire month of March playing shows from Southampton to Nottingham, from Cardiff to Newcastle. Same nonsense as a few months later when I zigzagged across the top of the states, pell-mell from here to there with no rhyme or reason or order. I'd learned that just like a little version of the U.S. of A., England has all these accents and dialects and jargon. From one place to the next, it might as well have been a whole different world. So I knew not every Englishman speaks all proper like, like Churchill. Same as every American don't talk like he's out of West Texas. Best I could tell by the lilt in his voice and a name like his, he came from somewhere near Ireland. Not quite Irish, but close. When he came back in, when Nurse Laura let him back in, the cute one wasn't alone. The one he brought with him this time, the funny one to the ladies was taller than Nurse Laura, but not by much. I didn't know who he was, of course, except a beard and a nose and a pair of aviators, but I knew right off he was funny. We just played three nights in Chicago, the cute one was telling him, and tomorrow is Minnesota, but later this month we've got three shows at the Forum, so I should be able to pop into the studio for that song. What's cooking? Nurse Laura had changed my sheets and shirt, two more things I hadn't relearned to do. And as she passed with, by with my half-eaten food, the funny one lifted the lid and took a look. Ooh, mash. And he left for me, love? Nurse Laura didn't have anything for him. Food or time or even a reply. But she did listen to the cute one. Oh, Nurse Laura, I've dragged in a friend. I hope they warned you, the people who do my arranging, that there'd be four of us. I found this one at the back door where they told me to come in, all secret-like. The others should be by shortly, all cabbing separately because, well, you know. 
He raised an eyebrow, either a conspirator or a Casanova. You wouldn't happen to have some chairs so we don't have to hold a bed in with Mr. Drake. The cute one looked at the hungry, funny one and stifled a smile and told him, I'm sorry, this is Mr. Drake. Mr. Drake, the funny one nodded, leaving his shades on but stretching a hand toward me before he saw the utensils still strapped to my own and shied away. Good to meet you. Not sure why he uprooted me from recording out on the coast, but I'm sure he has his reasons. Why don't you go with the good nurse here and find us a few chairs? The funny one followed the nurse into the hall like a puppy. Somewhere out there I heard her holler. Sister Mary Pat, what are you doing up here? This isn't your floor. I haven't told the others, my visitor said to me. I guess I should have. Friends of yours? I guess you could say we're business associates, he said. Or were, once upon a time. But yes, we're friends. Best of friends. Like brothers. Oh, I've got brothers, I said. Older brothers. And a sister. You might have met. That's right, I spoke with your brother as we were arranging this all. Now, just a quick thing. I'm about to tell my story best as I can. A story nobody knows. A story that starts here with four Englishmen who the whole world seemed to know. The whole world except for me. But I'm going to try to leave my family out of it. They protected me all those years from becoming a freak show. Some sort of sad tourist trap. Lying there just north of dead in some Minnesota hospital bed. Just north of the state where it all happened. And I know I'll be dead and gone once this gets read, as that's my stipulation for anyone reading this, listening to it, my, my, my story. But who knows who else might still be around? I, I hope they are. So it's my turn to protect my loved ones, same as they protected me. They didn't ask for any of this, not before, not since. So unless I have to, I'll leave them out of this, or I'll try to, because it's my story, not theirs. But we're like brothers, he said. Defend each other to the death, but give it to each other just as bad. That's brothers for you, I said. Nurse Laura and the funny one returned, chair under each arm and a scarecrow of a man in tow. Now, I don't say he was a scarecrow just because of how he looked, although he was awful thin. But over that bony frame of a body hung a thick winter coat and a big knit hat, like how a kid would decorate a fence post when the fall's turning to winter. The man was all coat and skeleton, and he moved like it. Not like a human, but like a machine. A machine that wasn't working quite right, all jerky and unsure. And over the coat's folded fur collar, and under the cap pulled down low, poked the skeleton of a face of someone who, who might have once been human, but looked well on his way to some other realm. He was yellow. Not off-white yellow or cream. He was yellow. Yellow yellow. Like a school bus or a lemon. The quiet one I'd learned he was called, well, he, he, he was quiet and unwell. Have you seen someone? The cute one was concerned. You look like hell. The funny one was blunt. Hepatitis is what they tell me, he said. Yes, I've seen them, and no, they haven't helped. We're looking into more holistic means now. Chinese remedies, natural healing, you know. The bottle only cost me my marriage, and a cool million or so, said the funny one. I don't think he was trying to be funny, but to me, he was just still some fellow wearing sunglasses inside. So I, I didn't pay him any mind when she walked into the room, the ghost in the hall. 
she wasn't a ghost at all. She was just a girl, or looked like a girl. I'd never seen her up closer for too long, and she was just a blur out in the hallway, wisping past all day, every day. But now this ghostly girl out there stopped and stood in my doorway, a habit on her head and a gypsy guitar in her hand. Now, I call her a girl because she's one of those girls who is kind of ageless, either a child who they say is an old soul, or a childlike old spinster who they call young at heart. She's neither of those and both of them all at once. And I call it a gypsy guitar because of how it looked. It was a gut string guitar, maybe only three quarters the size of a regular old acoustic guitar. It was all beat up, but she held it out to my visitors like it was a priceless Stradivarius violin. This guitar that looked like one a gypsy might play, or a nun. I thought you might like this, said the nun, handing the guitar first to the quiet one, who was shaking and shivering so hard he couldn't take it, then to the quiet one, who took it from her happily, then flipped it over, left-handed and upside down, and began to tune it. The vibration of the strings as they approached unison brought me back to all those guitars I'd tuned way back when. Sister Mary Pat, what did I tell you? And the dissonance of an angry nurse shooing a mouse-like nun brought me back to my bed, at the foot of which they sat down in a semicircle of rickety chairs in the order they'd arrived. The cute one, the funny one, the quiet one, and an empty seat. The cute one sang words before he began playing, strumming left-handed and upside down, so that the bottom strings were the top and the top ones the bottom, giving this old song I knew, this old song I'd never forgotten, this old song I couldn't ever forget a new sound. Just you know why time I'd been there at State Street Center, and in the time I'd been awake before they'd moved me there, nobody'd thought to play me any music. Or, and this is a theory of mine, they didn't play me any music for fear of how I'd react. I reacted, I believe, exactly how they worried I might. Just that gypsy guitar played all cattywampus by a British fellow with those great big eyes singing it to me like he meant it. I'd lost it by the first bridge, which he sang alone, every bit as earnest as he had the verse. And I really started bawling when the quiet one joined him, a third above with a close harmony. When he sang the second bridge all alone again, I'd composed myself enough to notice the fourth one arrive, the smart one, I guess what, that's what the girls called him. And he looked smart, intelligent anyway, shirt sleeves, spectacles. He could have been your history teacher or the man who sells you a washing machine, or books you a trip. He could, have, he could have been anyone, just a few years older, not confined by a broken body and a broken brain. In a hospital bed, he could have been me. And he joined me, he joined us, he joined them with a third harmony, giving that song two more than it had ever had in my world. Sometimes we'll 
By the time the three of them sang that last bit, I couldn't stop. Just laid there, circled by my own personal quartet, blubbering away like an old man crying over days gone by. You don't like Buddy Holly then? asked the new one, the smart one. What? I asked through the tears. I thought it sounded pretty good considering. I'd say we still got it. Regular Don and Phil, boys. Don and Phil Everly? They're still playing? I asked, remembering old friends from an old world. Those guys were lost in a world all their own. The quiet one took the guitar, flipped it the right way, pulled it tight against his big fur coat. Reminds me of this one. Just recorded it for my LP, old Cole, Cole Porter tune. We could have done it like the Everleys. Now, an Everly brother's take on that particular Cole Porter tune hadn't even existed in my old world. But I knew Bing Crosby's sailboat serenade from high society. And I knew I sure would have loved hearing those boys and their close harmonies give it a whirl. As the quiet ones started playing and singing, the smart ones voice mixed in right underneath like some English Everly brothers. I not only knew I'd have preferred Don and Phil's to old Bing's, I knew those four fellows there in my room were something real, something serious. Boy, they were something. Boy, they could sing. You give to me and I give to you true love, true love. Like brothers, they really were. They'd said it earlier and now I believed them. They knew how to sing all right too. They sang like only brothers can sing. One voice knowing where the other one's going. Both voices blending together just right, not because of blood really, but because of hours and hours spent singing, together. And just like brothers, they knew when not to sing too. The smart one he dropped out as the quiet one took the bridge all for himself. For you and I have a guardian angel on high with nothing I looked over at my guardian angel, watching him watch his two friends finish up their Everly Brothers routine. Good Don, John. Good Phil, George. The guitar made its way to the end of the semicircle. Me and Yoko were flying out next week to record this one I wrote for him. The smart one gestured over at the funny one. You boys have me flying all over the place, don't you? No piano here, so no boogie-woogie, but we'll make it work. How's this? I'm not sure if it was those Spanish strings on that guitar or how, how he strummed them, but the song sounded less Boogie Woogie Jerry Lee than it did Harry Belafonte. Calypso, maybe. The smart one gave the song a little bit of island bounce. The funny one, he, he gave the song some words. Not words I'd have come up with. Not singing them like someone who sings much either, except for his own entertainment. But he sang some words all right. And after each of his words, 
each of his lines, the guitarist, smiling like he was the funny one, he added some nonsense of his own. Well, I'm a cooking do lang do lang do lang, just a cooking lang do lang do lang, cooking in the kitchen alive. This went on, nonsense lyrics followed by nonsense words for a full verse before the two of them joined together to sing a chorus about some party they were going to have. But as soon as there was a party, the smart one, he played party pooper. He took a bad song and made it sad, but better, I guess. Stayed on the C chord, let his fingers trace a sad trail on the bass note. Then, instead of making up words like he'd just been doing, he hummed a melody. A melody that'd make a fella sad. Or make a fellow mad. While the smart one strummed and hummed, the quiet one, his bundled arms crossed even tighter than when he'd come in, stood up and stormed out. Like brothers, the other two, they seemed used to all the fuss, whatever it was their friends were fussing about, and they watched as the smart one stopped playing and followed the quiet one into the hall, guitar still in hand. What's wrong? I asked. Oh, John's just being funny, said the funny one, or trying to be. Funny? How? I thought it was pretty funny, to be honest, he said. The Chiffons, and then Eric. Chiffon, I said. Eric who? Cute one stepped in. Uh, Mr. Drake hasn't cupped up with, uh, he's, he's not much a fan of, uh, I don't think he knows the minutia of pop music, or how it pertains to George's personal life. That was a bit cheeky of him. Don't tell either of them I said that. One will get a bigger head, the other one a broken heart. That's what pop music is these days, I asked. No, no, no. The Doolangs, those are from a song you missed. A, a song you might not have heard before. A girl group called the Chiffons. And he, the one intent on drinking himself to an early grave, he recently settled a court case. One of their songwriters claiming he ripped off one of their songs. A song with those Doolangs in it. Then Eric, uh, that's this chap we know, he, he ran off with George's wife. A friend of yours, I asked. What's going on? Stealing songs from girls? Stealing wives from friends? What? Oh, it's all very messy, he said. But he wrote her Layla. He, he called it Layla, even though she's Patty, before running off with... He didn't actually write it, said the funny one. Not that part. The drummer did. Oh, no, 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 you're right. Jim Gordon, that studio drummer who was playing in Eric's band, he did play that part, the, the piano part. And he did get a co-writing credit for it, but didn't he cop it from his girlfriend? That singer Coolidge? Yes, I think the lovely Rita, she should have gotten the credit. Nobody ever gives the drummer credit, said the funny one. He got the credit how it counts. He's making the money when the song's played. Heard you'll be making money when Buddy's Ho Buddy Holly's songs are being played. 
The smart one came back into my room, one arm holding the guitar, the other one around his yellow brother, their quarrel all resolved. When he let go of the quiet one, he started up on yet another song. Yet another song by Buddy Holly. And the others leaned in close. Like brothers, three of them singing, all four of them, alone in their own world. Hold me close and tell me how you feel. Tell me love is real. You didn't care for that first Buddy Holly tune, the smart one said once the song faded off into the far corners of my room. How'd you like that one? That's one we recorded and played it. Must have been hundreds, thousands of times on stage. I, I, I like, I, I, I love, I love, I love it, I said. Figured you were a fan of his, you lying there in those Buddy Holly glasses of yours. See, back before we were, before, before we became who we were or are, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know who you were, I said. You seem to be a big deal, what with all the hush-hush and back stairwell intrigue. Don't you be sorry. It's refreshing, isn't it, guys? It's refreshing not to be somebody, to be nobody. Like back when we were just, when we were just fans of his, of Buddy Holly. Before I was me, some hippie, heretic, rock and roll star, whatever you want to call me, I was just a boy in Buddy Holly glasses. It was just a boy named John and a band named after Buddy's band. He's, he's why I took up music in the first place. He's why we all played music, or play music. And that's why I, I don't know if they reported on the nightly news, but Paul here just purchased the rights to Buddy Holly's songs. That's not exactly why I... Why, sure it is, because you're a fan, and because as a boy you were gutted when he died. He didn't die, the cute one said at the same time I said, I didn't die. Our voices had blended, not like brothers, but they'd blended, and the words they said they didn't quite register. Christ, said the smart one, not getting it. I fly halfway across America because he asked me to, but he can't tell me why, and I get to this, this, this home. And I figure, oh, I'm here to visit some fan who's on his deathbed, grant a final wish and all that. You. Then not only do you claim not to know who I am, who we are, there in your Buddy Holly glasses, but you're in on some elaborate joke that Buddy Holly didn't die? I didn't. What? I didn't die. No. Yes. And then, that crippled man in a hospital bed in a home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that nearly middle-aged man who had so much about the new world to be taught. That man taught those four Englishmen something. Those four men who'd seen and heard it all. The four men who'd seen and heard it all. Who There was nothing left they could be taught. As he told them the story of what happened 17, 18 years before to the boy in the Buddy Holly glasses. To me.